I love being short a falling market. It's, it's just cool. The market's falling, it's dumping, it pays you so fast, it's cascading, all your friends are losing money, you're making money. I mean, just, it's just almost as good as sex, okay? And it's just like incredible <laughs> in terms of just what amazing exhilaration it is to catch that move on the downside and like you just feel so, so manly and so on top of the world. From CMC Markets, this is The Artful Trader. And there are lots of opportunities. 100-point swing on the Dow. You can make lots of money at a bubble. I'm using the signals that I'm feeling really emotional to trigger an analysis. Because I think it's, it's these painful trades that are so instructive. Hello and welcome to The Artful Trader. I'm Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia Pacific. Each episode, we'll hear the highs and lows from the industry's experts and hear their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. From high school betting to the Marines to macro trading, today we meet a highly versatile trader, John Netto. For some, the art of trading is something instilled within you from an early age. Take John Netto. He took his first position at the age of eight and set up a sports betting syndicate at high school, providing liquidity for other kids. It was clear from the outset he was destined for great things. Now John Netto is a cross-asset class trader and author of The Global Macro Edge, Maximising Return Per Unit of Risk. He's also the creator of The Netto Number. John's special skill, his superpower if you will, is his flexibility. He calls himself the protean trader, which means he's adaptable and he's versatile. So how does that translate into the trading world? Well, John has developed a trading strategy that manages algorithmic and high-frequency trades across a range of time zones, asset classes, and markets, keeping a close eye on global trends. And he's turned this recipe into some form of alchemy, making problems into profitable opportunities. From Las Vegas, Nevada, John Netto joins us on the Artful Trader podcast. John, it's a privilege for our listeners to the Artful Trader podcast to have you with us today. Uh, I know amongst my own milieu of traders that uh, your, your book, One Shot, One Kill Trading, is very influential. Uh, and I know that a number of our uh, listeners have already dived into the uh, global macro edge. Um, John, I'd like to start at the very beginning, if I may. How old were you when you placed your first bet? That's a great question. I was the age of eight, and I was in elementary school at the time. And the idea of taking risk or or having some sort of attachment to the outcome of an event um, had a lot of appeal to me at a young age. And it was a San Francisco 49ers and Dallas Cowboys game. And and I was a a young, albeit very passionate fan of, of, of the game and having an outcome on it just seemed really natural to me, seemed really obvious and, and intuitive. And when my classmate being, I, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, so there was a preponderance of San Francisco 49er fans. It'd be like if, you know, you live in Sydney and there were a lot of Melbourne fans and all this, you were, you were a fan of a Melbourne team and you bet with all the Sydney fans. Well, I was a Dallas Cowboy fan living in San Francisco, so it was a, an early start to a contrarian investing career. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And then, John, you went to the Marine Corps. What did you learn there? What didn't I learn in the Marine Corps is probably a better question. Um, <laughs> if I can say one big thing that it taught me, and it taught me a lot, and for that I'm forever grateful, but the one thing that stands out about the Marine Corps is learning to live outside my comfort zone and learning to challenge myself and push myself further. You know, I mean, I mean imagine this, if you will, 18 years of age, rolling up on what's regarded by many as the most elite fighting force in the world, and and it was something that came actually pretty intuitive. It was a pretty snap decision, which can be a quality that can both be to your benefit and detriment as a trader. And it's sort of a quality I exhibited early that 
going to the Marine Corps just seemed intuitively right. Um, I was relatively soft, you know, emotionally and physically. So going through that training and going through the mental rigor um, was something that not only pushed me outside my comfort zone, but provided a framework of discipline and process that I'd been lacking up to that point in time. And it's not just discipline in the obvious ways in terms of you're told to do something, you do it. But it's, you know, my drill instructor told me that discipline is doing the right thing when no one is looking. Okay. The little things, the details, the subtleties. And what we find in trading, a lot in trading actually, is that, you know, you got to fight for every basis point of performance. Okay. It's the subtleties. It's not that, it's not that many of us make big, transparent, obvious mistakes. It's the subtleties and the details that can often compound themselves and lead to much bigger losses. Oh, I, I didn't read this research report like I was supposed to, or I forgot to make sure that my stop was in place at this point, or I didn't do that little thing there. It's these little things that add up, and these little things are often a byproduct of either not having a crystallized process or not having the discipline to follow that process. I mean, I spent close to eight and a half years in the Marines, and I learned two foreign languages. I learned to speak Japanese and Chinese. I, I was stationed in Japan for four years. I worked at the U.S. Embassy. Um, and during that time, living in Japan taught me not only about the culture of the Marine Corps, but the culture of Japan. Different perspectives, again, stepping outside my comfort zone. So from learning to live outside my comfort zone would ultimately transcend into trading as well. And how did you make that journey from elite soldier to trader? Um, very carefully. I would say that being around the markets was was something that predated or preceded my time in the Marine Corps. In high school, along with running a gambling operation, I was also an avid reader of the Wall Street Journal and Investor's Business Daily, um, learned about options. And when I was the age of 12, saw the movie Wall Street from Oliver Stone. And, you know, Oliver Stone wrote and, and, and produced and directed that movie to highlight the greed and avarice that existed on Wall Street of the 1980s, just the decadence, the, the opulence, the the greed that was on Wall Street in terms of what Wall Street came to symbolize. And paradoxically or ironically, what he ended up doing was launching an era of people who wanted to go to finance. <laughs> so, I mean, to follow up, to actually answer your question, you actually asked me, how did I transition? I just gave you the philosophy behind the transition. No, that's um, a good shortcut, John. I'm very happy to hear it. You know, I was in the Marines and I began trading online with an E-Trade account in 1998 while still in Japan and then was accepted to an officer commissioning program at the University of Washington. I came back in 1998 to the States after living four years overseas. And then from there, there was a, an application called, called CyberTrader, which was ultimately bought out by Charles Schwab in, I believe, 2000 or 2001. And I, and I just began trading you know, stocks online and really developing a system and, and learning by taking, frankly, a lot of lumps. I mean, I lost a lot of money at first. It was not you know, for as smart as I thought I was. It wasn't producing the P&L, and I was making the same mistakes that everybody was. I was you know, letting losses run too big. The second I saw profits, I would take them. I mean, the one thing that I always had, though, was discipline. So at least I could see that if I'm losing, I knew for enough from what I had read the importance of risk management. So while I wasn't making money and I was definitely losing money, I wasn't blowing up. Okay, like I wasn't having my account get wiped out because I could at least adhere under pressure, which the Marines were great at teaching, how to, how to respond under pressure. And to this day, the ability to prevent losses from being catastrophic losses is a byproduct of that ability to function under immense pressure. Creating a winning system on paper is a completely different skill set than monetizing that system or monetizing an opinion in the market. Analyzing the market is different than monetizing that perspective in the market itself. It's very much a different art because trading in and of itself is a skill set 
that is an art all into itself. Uh, yes, well, you'll get a lot of agreement from our listeners on that point, John. I mean, let's start with the hard part of it. What was your worst ever trade? Or, or perhaps not the biggest loss, but the one that you felt the most, your most painful trade? Yeah, um, like most traders, I have more than one most painful trade. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> and, 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 I try and I try and avoid superlatives because it's just really tough, both I think in life and the trading world, to say what's the most, what's the biggest, what's the best. What's the least? So I'm going to throw a couple bones your way because I think it's, it's these painful trades that are so instructive and help us learn so much. It's not just one example that I did 20 years ago and, oh, my God, I was changed forever. No. I got in this awful trade. It was awful. And I got better from it. But that definitely wasn't the last time <laughs> that I did something stupid or bad. OK, <laughs> that's just not how the world works. Right. Well, we're all human beings. So for me, <laughs> the trade that stands out the most early in my career goes back to 2003. And it was after the Persian Gulf War started. And I was, by this point in time, an active futures trader. I'd already migrated to trading futures. And futures have a very similar leverage component to Forex in terms of how much leverage they allow you to put on into a position. And this was the weekend that the market was hoping that actually a peaceful resolution would happen before the Gulf War started in 2003. That peaceful resolution didn't happen. And I ended up getting super aggressive short coming in Monday morning when that resolution didn't happen. What happened was a classic gap down rip up scenario. And really, even to this day, this was probably the worst tilt I've ever gone on. When I say tilt, it means that it becomes purely emotional in terms of how you're trading. You're no longer employing logic. You're no longer being objective about the position. And this day, I ended up losing about, gosh, 30% of my account value by trying to short the market six or seven different times. The Dow was up like four or 500 points that day. The Nasdaq was up like 150 or 200. The S&P was up 40 or 50 points. And I literally got, and like I wiped out all of my profits on the year in the first half hour. But it didn't matter to me because at that point in time, the money wasn't real anymore. Okay. And that to me is why I cited as a trade that may be the worst trade of my, of my career. Because when you lose respect for what you're trading, when you no longer are following a process, and not only was I not following a process... I was using extreme amounts of leverage when I wasn't following the process. And I was doubling and tripling and quadrupling down and completely chasing. And the crazy part is I'd actually at one point cut my losses in half to where they were actually somewhat manageable. And I could have just quit at that point. Said, okay, I can move on now. But I didn't. The market was convinced on just ripping like crazy. And so instead of you know cutting my losses in half, I gained aspirations that now I can actually fulfill my destiny and make all this money today. And so... In every aspect of this chronology of, the, of this trade going back to March of 2003, I broke my process, broke my process repeatedly, lost all objectivity, didn't follow any of my, of my one-shot, one-kill trading techniques, okay, gave up all the profits I made on the year, and went on total and complete emotional tilt to where all I wanted to do was chase and get my money back. In every way, that has to stand out as the worst trade ever. Now, monetarily, that's not the worst trade ever. I've had far worse financial trades since then. You know, going back to 2015, where I gave up a third of my profits, and this, and this is recently as 2015, it's even part of the book, okay? And I talk about, you know, how I, how I was up $700,000 on the year, and in literally 11 seconds, Mike, I lost $220,000, $210,000 in 11 seconds. Ouch. From what I'd made in the previous 10 months. How do you recover from a loss like that, John? It's what freaking champions are made of, baby. You know, <laughs> you got it. Is there a process though? Do you take a break? I don't take a break for the sake of taking a break. The first thing you do is stop. 
Okay, so yes, from, from just a, a figurative standpoint or from an emotional or from a symbolic standpoint, you need to stop because whatever process you were using, when you have an outsized loss like that, there needs to be a time of recalibration. And the first part of recalibration is to stop and to just cease all activity so that you can assess exactly what took place and make sure that there's not something more systemic at, at hand, which could, which could interfere with what you're trying to accomplish. So let's just go more recently with, with the October break. Obviously, I was devastated. It, it just, it happened so fast and it was so swift and it was so violent. It's, it's almost like the five stages of death. The first thing is like denial. Mm. And then the last stage of death is acceptance. Okay, I'm actually going to die and this is it. Okay, what hell of a run. All right. And so the October 2015, because it's relatively more recently, you know, I talk about this in the book. You can see it from my audited track record. You know how I lost, I think I want to say $200,000 in the month of October 2015. What transpired here? And let's be brutally honest with yourself. You know, you want to remain, you want to keep that impartiality while you assess these things. And for me, it really came down to, okay, here's what I did right that day. I looked at how the market could, could go the other direction. I was playing with profits. So I was trying to press profits and catch the market for another leg higher. In my case, I thought the Fed that day would come out and attack the last sacred cow. Something that I do really well is I, I grade... Um, qualitative events quantitatively. So I'll take a Fed event or a Bank of England event or, or, or a ECB event or, you know, RBA event, and I'll attach a quantitative score to it based on a very unique bespoke a modeling perspective that, that aggregates aspects of the statement using technology and then, and then synthesize that to, to, to create a score. And then based on that score, I'll trade accordingly through my impact software, which stands for market price action. It's this event trading risk management system I built over four years that's Pretty devastating, to be honest with you, both good and bad, as, as I've just demonstrated. And so, so really, it comes down to, okay, was there something wrong with my model, all right? And for me, I can't fault myself for trying to press my winners. That, that's a pretty laudable thing. I'm going to press my winners and try and build more winners. But the process of doing that didn't fully take into account how I assess market positioning. That was a day that the position I wanted to put on was already overweight with a lot of people in the market already. Okay, and that's something I just simply didn't give enough weight to. There were already a lot of people looking for a more dovish Fed statement. Instead, what the Fed did was come out and say, guess what, guys, we're going to hike rates for the first time at the December meeting of 2015, for the first time in eight years. And that move, if you look back to October 28th of 2015, you'll see an enormous sell off in treasuries, enormous sell off in gold, an enormous rally in the dollar, enormous sell off in Aussie dollar, Kiwi, emerging market currencies everywhere. And actually, on the release of that, I actually went long and bought all of those. So the discipline that I learned from 15 years earlier, and it, and it evolved in my career, was I cut the loss super quick. So even though I lost a third of what I had made, my process for getting out quickly, for realizing that my model had scored this totally effing wrong, I totally blew the score on the model, that I saw that, and instead of being in shell shock about what had happened... I only lost 200,000 instead of four or 500,000 <laughs> because, and I held on two minutes longer, I'd be down half a mil, you know what I mean? And that's not any good either. More from John Neto in a moment. This is The Artful Trader, uncovering the highs and the lows to mastering the art of the financial markets. Being a good macro trader is like being an explorer, seeking out those unknown territories before everyone else. As marijuana moves from the black market to the medical mainstream, we meet James Halliwell, who dared to trade where others feared to trade. So we began to get an understanding of user preferences, and I think most importantly from that, how attitudes were changing um, in terms of tolerance or acceptance of 
cannabis for recreational purposes and also for, for medical usage. So we looked at it from that standpoint and began to get a feel for um, the potential size of the industry, which according to some research could become like a 50 billion industry by 2026. That's a huge number. You can hear all of our previous interviews at theartfultraderpodcast.com or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Now, back to my chat with John Neto, talking to us from Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, we've been through the pain. Let's go to the other side of the coin, John. Some <laughs> trades that were memorable because they were so good. Yeah. So, and this is something that, that you know, in the book, I thought it was, it was really critical that we operate from a level of transparency. People who have read The Global Macro Edge, as you touched on at the top of the, of the podcast, can reference early on in the book where I have a, a CPA come in and audit my returns over six years, where effectively I took $100,000 in cash and generated $3.1 million in P&L on that. That's counting the $200,000 plus loss that I took on that Fed event from October of 2015. And so, you know, the best month during that time actually goes to July of 2013, where I made close to a quarter million dollars. And in particular, there was one day in there that then I actually took account statements and, and copied the account statements and actually put them in the chapter itself, showing how I made close to $150,000 in one day just by, not just by, I mean, there's a lot of work that went into it, but by understanding that, that Ben Bernanke and the taper tantrum that happened in May of 2013, in essence, where the Fed telegraphed that they were going to be more data dependent and not based on a calendar basis. And so what that meant was that economic data was now going to be more fully priced into the market. And the market had a hard time after so many years, you know, adjusting to the fact that we are now data dependent and no longer on a calendar basis to where, okay, well, the Fed says, well, we'll hike in two years from now. Or we'll hike in four years from now. We'll freaking hike when the market starts to get hot at boys and girls. And, and the market, that meant that all of a sudden economic data had real meaning again. And so understanding that and understanding the sell-off in the bond market, I got really short treasuries and I just kept pressing these bets. So on what was like initially really twenty five or 30000 of risk, I pressed it over a 48-hour period and made close to $150,000. And a lot of that came on the release of a non-farm payroll number on, on Friday, July 5th, 2013, where I popped, you know, a buck 30 of that 150 came in the 15 minutes around that event where I then I then was like short 80 treasuries. I added 70 more treasuries. So like on a $300,000 account, I'm carrying a $15 million short notional position. Just keep pressing my winners and pressing my winners <laughs> and pressing them going down. But that's, you know, that's how you're supposed to do it, Mike. That's right. You run your winners. Run my winners. Cut your losses. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's what stands out as a great day. And there's another day. Very similar circumstance uh, at the end of 2014. My wife and I were about five days from being married or, or seven days from being married. Another big winner. And that ended up being close to like 70% of my annual P&L. Um, the first nine months of 2014, I think I was literally break even, which it's important that people see. Dude, I took $100,000 and ran it to $3.1 million and had multiple six to nine month stretches where I was literally break even and still made that kind of P&L. And so it's critical that if you go flat for two or three or four months, that you have this kind of granularity of your system, that you can understand and appreciate that these swings or, or lulls can be very much a part of even the most robust system, which frankly, mine's pretty damn robust. Well, speaking of your system, when did you come up with the netto number? Sure. Um, the netto number actually has gone through a couple of adaptations or evolutions. The first time I coined it was back in 2003, 2004. When I used it as a way in my first book, One Shot, One Kill Trading, 
to diagnose the robustness of a particular trade. And we incorporated things like where markets were relative to Fibonacci levels, where they were relative to moving averages, critical support. I wanted to give a base quantitative framework for the readers to begin to systematize the robustness of a trading of a trade setup. Okay, so that was the first use of the netto number. As time evolved and as, and as I evolved as a trader, the netto number came to encapsulate something even more. And so what the global macro edge does and really what the netto number does is it's completely recalibrated how we assess a manager, a strategy, or a market on a return per unit of risk basis. So most books, most systems, most, most strategies simply look at things based on their returns. What I espouse and what the netto number teaches you to do is to look at things based on returns per unit of risk. It's great that you made 10000 or 20000 or $50,000, but what were you risking to make that? Okay, and the netto number provides a methodology, a very simple methodology to answer that question. So looking at your most recent book, The Global Macro Edge, why did you write it? Man, that's a great question. Um, I do subscribe to the belief that to whom much is given, much is expected. And I'd probably argue that even you, Mike, like, why is it that you do what you do? It's not just about you like analyzing the markets. You like sharing. You like teaching. You like the collaboration that comes from the markets. You like the camaraderie that comes from the markets. And so when I think about, you know, why does it we do what we do and why the contributing authors contributed what they contributed, it's as much about that sense of duty that compelled me to serve in the Marine Corps is, is very much a part of my and our, our ethos. And for me, it's a call to action. What is my call to action? What is it that I can do to leverage on not only myself, but leverage on the investment community out there? And my call to action is the global macro edge. My call to action is the netto number, which teaches people how to recalibrate how they look at an investment portfolio and incorporate a true three-dimensional perspective and not only measuring a manager based on what their returns are and not only measuring a manager based on what their risk-adjusted returns are, but to incorporate a third dimension. And that third dimension is measuring a manager based on how much predefined risk they had. So if you have to, to be, have a successful portal economy, you need a call to action. And then you look at Facebook or Twitter or Airbnb. They leverage tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people from their portal. And so commercially for me, the Global Macro Edge represents a portal to bring on investment professionals, advisors, hedge fund managers, investors that can all synchronize themselves around these concepts, which quite frankly are just better ways of doing business. That's freaking powerful. And that is a catalyst in a portal to attract thousands, if not tens of thousands of people and launch a revolution in the investment industry. And it's that passion, clearly, that drove you to write the book, um, John. Um, how long did it take you? <laughs> Don't remind me, Michael. Are you trying to, like, rub salt in the wound on this? What are you doing, Michael? <laughs> you, know, you know, it was quite a journey, and I'm glad, it, I'm glad it took the time that it did because it wouldn't have come out the way it did had it not um, gone on that respect, respective journey from both the content and, and, and time perspective and temporal perspective. And so I began writing it in March of 2011, and, I, and the last edit was made in September of 2016. And literally, we had the copies in late September 2016 when we went on our first book tour in New York City to do the pre-launch. So it was five and a half years. I spent close to 3,000 hours, 200 weekends, over a dozen plane trips, probably closer to 20 plane trips all around the country. Literally, the book went through six or seven different title changes. It became the Global Macro Edge because as I was recording my performance, you know, 
And you can see this crescendo building, but frankly, the strategies that I was using were also evolving. My trading style was also evolving, how I understood market positioning, how I incorporated the macro narrative. And so we came up with the title, The Global Macro Edge, because the global macro edge is the ability to apply the underlying macro narrative to a number of robust trading strategies and dynamically allocating to those strategies based on their probability of success. If you're in one kind of macro environment, then certain strategies will work better than if you're in another macro environment. And so that global macro edge is the ability to effectively gear or lever your exposure to what strategies will work the best in those environments. And we constructed the book to match those phases. So let's, let's cut to it. What are the macro, major macro issues that are, that are shaping markets and opportunities at the moment? Sure. So I think that there's tremendous opportunities in the energy space. Okay. I think crude oil right now um, has a lot of opportunity just being long gamma or just being long a lot of basic option structures. I think that crude volatility um, on a 90-day basis is price correct. I think crude volatility on a one to two-week basis or the gamma around that 90-day um, optionality is significantly mispriced. And so what we're seeing is a lot of a market that is transitioned from being a market that pays attention to tier one data like um, CPI, like a non-farm payrolls, like a Fed event, we've actually seen that on a relative basis, these Fed events, the, B the Bank of England events, the RBA events are largely telegraphed and inconsequential. But what does matter and what we do have to position ourselves for is this sort of fake news environment where people are moving on innuendo. They're moving on the Chinese yuan fix, which is actually more conducive to someone who trades on Australian hours and someone who trades on American hours, okay? We're seeing mispricings in energy because energy has responded so much to these tariff announcements, or the, I should say more this innuendo than actual, than actual implementation of tariffs, that you have a structural mispricing in the energy space. And I've been able to take advantage of that in 2018, of that mispricing of optionality, at least short-term optionality, while long-term optionality is, is more appropriately priced. But understanding that difference of, of the vol curve or volatility curve has presented a great opportunity. And then lastly, I would say, on a bigger macro level, what kind of problems exist from this run-up in asset prices? And this is a high-quality problem, but a problem nonetheless is, hey, people who own homes, at least in the U.S., and I know Sydney has seen record real estate appreciation as well throughout many parts of Australia, people have a disproportionate amount of their net worth tied up in their home. And you would say, well, John, why does that matter? And I'd say, well, it matters because you have a school teacher that makes $75,000 a year whose home is worth $1.2 and 90% or 95% of their net worth is tied up in their house. And the real estate market, which is an $80 to $100 trillion global market, is so, is so dysfunctional, is so inefficient that the person can't access that wealth because of all this appreciation in the last 10 years, without the burdens of taking on debt. So I'm looking to companies who have innovated in the real estate space where even the most incremental of edges can amount to huge, can amount to billions of dollars in profits. And so for me, when I look at you know, investments, whether it's on a tactical level like we talked about with crude, or whether it's on a macro level like we can talk about with real estate, they need to have three things. One, they need to generate a return per unit of risk, like I talked about, as measured by the netto number. So I want to know, based on what I'm really risking, what kind of return I can get. Number two, the investment needs to solve a problem. The more systemic the problem, the more extreme the problem, the more sustainable and the more viable the solution is. If you have a big problem, Mike, that solution's not going to be solved overnight. 
So that investment is more durable, it's more sustainable, and it really has a chance to yield tremendous results. And then the last thing is, does the structure add value to it? So if I look at this real estate trade, does the structure of providing liquidity to homeowners allow me to participate in the upside appreciation while mitigating my downside losses? And the answer is yes to that. So every investment decision, every trading decision I make, ideally meets those three things. But the, it's a key issue you raise here, John, that solving problems uh, is a potential source of profit, um, not just in marketing, but across markets. And the bigger the problem, the bigger the potential reward in solving it. Is that right? Absolutely right. Spot on, Mike. We've talked a lot um, on this podcast series about traders overcoming or analysing their emotions. And um, the psychologist of traders, Denise Shul, wrote a chapter in your book, The Global Macro Edge. Uh, can you talk about that process? Sure. Uh, Denise Shull is, is someone who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. We've worked together on, on repeated occasions. We, we've done multiple live trading webinars together. One webinar that we reference in Chapter 19, it's really cool because I'm trading live futures. She's analyzing me for an hour and a half while I'm trading live, asking me questions about what I'm thinking, and really trying to demonstrate to the audience the power of emotions and really the power of intuition when channeled correctly as an additional analytical tool in terms of one's trading. And so what we do in chapter 19 is actually create, um, we call a fear of missing out spectrum, a FOMO spectrum, where I define quantitatively my range of emotions. And on one side of it, all I have is fear of losing money. And on the other side of it, I have no fear whatsoever. I'm completely oblivious that I can even lose any money whatsoever. And, and really in the middle of the batches where I have a healthy respect for what I can lose, but I also understand the authentic opportunity that exists and how I have to act on it. And that's kind of the balance point. And so we provide actually some color for people to not only, you know, begin to record their own emotions and record their own feelings and to really provide a more granular analysis of what those may look like, but also how they can incorporate that into their own process and really create a more robust qualitative framework to analyze the markets. Because what I found is, is that at times when I put on trades, where I have absolutely little or no respect for the fear side of it, a big move is coming, okay? And most likely it will be against me. <laughs> and, and one of the strategies I talk about is, you know, on those occasions that I actually have this feeling that, oh my God, the S&P is going to dump or sell down hard. There's no way it's going to turn around. This is so amazing because I'm like most traders. I love being assured of falling market. It's, it's just cool. The market's falling, it's dumping. It pays you so fast. It's cascading. All your friends are losing money. You're making money. I mean, just, it's just almost as good as sex, okay? And it's just like incredible <laughs> in terms of just what amazing exhilaration it is to catch that move on the downside. And like, you just feel so, so manly and so on top of the world. But that, that can work against you. And especially if you're caught in a 10-year bull market where that really rarely happens. If that's what you're playing for, it can be quite problematic. And so for me, I came to discover that when I have those feelings as rare as they are, that it's actually a great time to be long optionality. And so by buying calls to the upside, you can still play your downside and manage it, but you definitely want to be long optionality during those times. When you get into a position and you believe that it's absolutely impossible for you to lose money, that needs to be a real warning bell, okay? Because we deal in markets that are at least efficient enough where just the noise factor alone can shake you out, okay? And having some type of viable exposure to the opposite side needs to be strongly considered at that point. Um, I talk about actually in chapter 19 and show account statements of where I use my intuition and actually I felt this fear to add to position size. 
I felt this fear. It was, but it was a healthy fear, though. It was, it was. I should say a better word is tension. I felt this tension that said, John, if you add to this, you could actually have all your profits wiped out. But it wasn't a fear, and it was my analysis combined with this tension that gave me a strong indication that I should add to it. So I was short treasury, 20 treasury contracts, then 50 treasury contracts, then 70. And at that point in time, most people were like, dude, you've got enough size. And I'm like, no, I still feel this tension. I still feel this, this uncomfortable sense in my stomach about holding this short. And as long as you feel that, that sense, that uncomfortable sense, for me, normally that's a good sign that the market's going to keep moving in that direction. It's when I begin to feel comfortable and I'm I am and my friends about how awesome I am and look, I made this trade. Dude, you're done, dude. Seriously, you are done <laughs> at that point, all right? You need to cover your position and get the F out of Dodge. Because when you yeah. feel comfortable enough to tell your friends, you know, and brag to your colleagues that, dude, I just shorted treasuries and caught, you know, 12 basis points there. God, I'm awesome. No, dude, you're done. You're totally done. <laughs> Hubris kills traders, huh, John? <laughs> Hubris kills trades and P&L, dude. Hubris crushes P&L. Success is about understanding incremental edges. And the question you should make about every investment decision or about every research decision before you add to your whole ecosystem should be, what kind of incremental edge will this give me in terms of my application? And I think if people take that probabilistic approach to say, okay, if I purchase this thing here, or if I lease this thing, or if I subscribe to this research, I can theoretically increase my edge from here to here. And then what does that do to my bottom line? Well, in the example I just gave you, that could be the difference between making 14% in a year and 22% in a year. That could be the difference between trading a $100,000 account and a $300,000 account in three years from now. That could be the difference from paying your bills um, and, and not being able to make a living and having to work a part-time job to actually doing this full-time. So incremental edges are the foundation for tremendous success. <laughs> John, that was great. Thank you very much for that. Mike, it was an absolute pleasure to finally meet up and sync up with you. That was John Neto speaking to us from Las Vegas. For more information about John, go to his website, The Protein Trader. For previous episodes of The Artful Trader and more information about CMC Markets, head to our website, theartfultraderpodcast.com, where new and existing clients can also access some limited time offers. Or listen to The Artful Trader on your favourite podcast app. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not speak to your personal financial situation. I'm Michael McCarthy, and thanks for listening. This is The Artful Trader.